So we are continuing in this Sunday School series uh, entitled Key Figures of the Reformation. So we're walking through um, men that the Lord used greatly in uh, the Reformation, uh, Protestant Reformation, uh, Swiss Reformation, uh, different, different areas. So uh, we're talking about uh, Wycliffe and Huss and Zwingli and Luther and Calvin and Bollinger. Um, all these men that the Lord used greatly in the Reformation. So today, we come to Jan Hus, properly pronounced, but we would know him as John Hus. Um, so first layout, so you have in front of you, I'll give a little intro. We're going to talk about the life of Hus, and then we're going to walk through his theology in some different areas. Okay? Talk about his life and then his theology, just like we did with Wycliffe. So the impact of Wycliffe on the theological scene in Prague at the time in Bohemia was deep and is still felt today. We're still affected by that impact. At the heart of this movement was a return to scripture and a renewed pursuit of doctrinal integrity and personal purity. Doctrinal integrity and personal purity. They were not separate. Wycliffe's teachings sort of caught fire in the heart of the Czech Orthodox student in particular, and that Czech Orthodox student was John Hus or Jan Hus. Hus was consumed with Wycliffe's views. Um, later, when he was asked to give a defense for his doctrinal convictions, he pretty much responded by saying he had read pretty much all of Hus's writings for the past 24 plus years. That was pretty much his answer. In other words, Wycliffe's teachings became Huss's own beliefs. So who was this John Huss? You're going to hear a lot about Wycliffe as I talk about Huss because Wycliffe was instrumental in the theology of Huss as it spread throughout Bohemia at this time. So the life of Huss. There's a picture of Huss. Maybe that's a picture. Um, there are different pronounce uh, spellings of Huss. Some spell it H-U-S-S, some H-U-S. Some uh, John in this way, J-O-H-N, uh, properly Hyun, J-A-N. But anyway, a picture of Huss with a nice beard, I should add. So Huss was grounded in the scriptures and, as mentioned, very familiar with Wycliffe's writings. Like Wycliffe, he held to the sole authority of scripture. He wrote against papal authority, which we heard a lot when talking about Wycliffe. He wanted the Bible translated into the Czech language. And in addition to all this, he actually introduced congregational singing to the Bohemian church. He introduced congregational singing, which we love. Hus was born in Husnik, which is a small town in South Bohemia in what we know as modern day, the modern day Czech Republic. So this area uh, in Prague here is near where Hus was born. So you see it sort of, you have uh, Germany to the left here, Austria, um, Slovakia and then Poland. It's sort of tucked in between them, this area, Prague. And I have a picture of what may be his hometown. Not there, but maybe coming up soon. I don't know. We'll give my iPad some time to load. Oh, continuing. So the name Hus um, actually means, anybody know what Hus means? Goose. Yes, goose. Huss's mother actually wanted him to be a priest, which is noble of her, but Jan Huss didn't receive a high education like some of the other reformers, Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, but he did receive an education. And it was actually during this time at the University of Prague when Huss had a job copying Wycliffe's writings by hand that he was exposed to Wycliffe's theology and it was those writings that would later change his life. So he's copying Wycliffe's works and it was through copying Wycliffe's works that uh, Huss formed this his theology which was very interesting. You can actually go to Stockholm Law Library today in Sweden and there are still five cup copies of those handwritten works of Huss as he's copying Wycliffe's writings, those works that God used to transform his life. So he actually graduated with a master in 1396 and he actually started teaching philosophy in Prague, um, similar actually to Wycliffe, teaching philosophy. Later, Huss got a hold of more of Wycliffe's writings, 
through a man named Jerome and they continued to stir him as he read and affirmed his already concerns for the spirituality of the church. When I say church there, I mean the Roman Catholic Church. Some of the teachings of Wycliffe that really resonated with us was his stance against the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, which you'll see commonly or developed even in some of the reformers. Um, in other words, Huss believed that the true church was made up of genuine believers within the institutional church. So we'll talk about that more. He believed that the church was genuine believers within the institutional church, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. Or to put it another way, Huss believed that the church was made up of the elect who are predestined to grace and glory. And again, we'll look more at this in a sec. So this kind of teaching uh, that Christ has a true church within the institutional church or the uh, invisible church within the visible church, you guys have probably heard that term, the invisible church and the visible church, the invisible church within the invisible church, those who are truly saved within uh, those who are, so when we go into any congregation at any church, um, or let's, let's just say a, a large church, maybe 500 member church, maybe. As you look at that congregation, that's the uh, visible church, local, visible church. Within that church are those who are truly saved, assuming that everyone in that congregation isn't saved. They could be, but for the point of the scenario. As you look out on that congregation, there is a visible, there is an invisible church within that visible church, the truly saved within the congregation of those who are gathered. Um, okay, where was that? So this, this type of thinking, it wasn't popular, of course, in uh, Roman Catholic theology because there, the, the church, so on one aspect, on one side of this, the church and the state are sort of welded together in a sense. On the other side of this is that you have the Pope and the papal offices and they believe, uh, at least the Pope, to be the vicar of Christ. He is the uh, sort of um, go-between in a sense. And those who have papal offices are, they would all believe genuinely uh, of Christ and in Christ and united with him, probably wouldn't put it that way, but united with him. And so they are the true church. The Pope believed that Pope, papal offices, those within the institution of the church are absolutely the true church. But Wycliffe, along with Huss, is saying, no, the elect are the true church, not those who have the external garments of righteousness with no true righteousness of heart. Okay? So this was dangerous at this time. And as we've said before, uh, teachings and ideas like this, they were a federal offense. They were capital crimes. You could not stand against the, uh, the, the Pope and the papal offices and say, no, what you're doing is wrong. Um, you should not be accepting payment from king and church. You should not be preaching in this way. For that type of thinking and propagation, you would be brought down to uh, Rome, you would stand before the Pope and the papal offices, officers, and you would probably be ex ex not, not only excommunicated, but killed, uh, burned at the stake even, as Huss was. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Back to the life of Huss. So although Huss was a professor at the University of Prague, in 1402, he was actually appointed the preacher of this huge church at the time in that same area. The name of that church was Bethlehem Church. So it seated um, over 3,000, which was like a mega church at that time. We all, we, no, I'm not gonna comment on that. It was like a mega church at that time. Something to make note of again here, though not as highly educated as some other reformers, Huss was a student of the word. He wasn't as highly educated as some of them, but he was a student of the word. He valued the word. His preaching actually supported reformed thinking in many areas. Uh, this reformed thinking in theology became popular among other university students at Prague as well, who are also having some issues with the religion of Rome. So Huss is adopting Wycliffe's teaching. Wycliffe was condemned, as I said last week, 31 years after he died. They had his body dug up, his bones dug up, they burned his bones along with his writings and threw them into a river. So Wycliffe was condemned. 
Huss is taking on Wycliffe's theology and he's propagating it in Prague at this university. So you have students who are very influenced by Wycliffe through Huss, and they're taking on this theology as well, which is a good thing. But some of these students are taking it to a level to where they're actually rioting. They're standing against anything that um, even remotely resembles Roman Catholic uh, theology and the institutional church, and they're rioting. And so it's, their, their theology is uh, lining up, but their actions as they flow out of uh, maybe a wrong understanding of the application of that theology is affecting these areas where Huss is teaching, and Huss is being blamed for this, right? <clears throat> so not, not a good thing. So at that same university where Huss was a professor, there was a split when a man named Johann Hubner picked 45 theses from Wycliffe's writings with the German faculty at that school at the time, and he charged them with heresy or charge them as being heretical. Now, I'm thinking he was already charged with heresy and he y'all dug up his bones, burned them, threw them into a river, and again <laughs> they're finding writings and charging him again with with heresy. So again, to to have any type of uh, theology or thinking that was opposed to the Roman Catholic Church was dangerous. So this is an issue at the University of Prague. Um, you have these Czech students those uh, same students that were rioting in defense and affirmation of Wycliffe's writings versus a month, uh, mostly German faculty at the school which affirmed Wycliffe as a heretic. So school split. Czech students uh, having, gaining Wycliffe's theology and Huss's theology saying this is right. Faculty, mostly German, having condemned Wycliffe as a heretic are saying his writings are wrong. So this is all happening in this one school, and so it's causing this huge controversy within the school, okay? So this backdrop, it's history, it's historical, but it's important as we sort of move into the theology of Huss and some other things. So that's what's going on at the school that Huss is teaching. <clears throat> so this pretty much caused the school to be split down the middle. Following this, Huss was excommunicated once and then again for almost the same reasons. Um, Huss was excommunicated. The first time he was excommunicated, it was because a papal bull, what is a papal bull? What's a bull? We talked about a decree, right? A papal bull was set out um, or put against preaching um, in private chapels, including Bethlehem Church where Wycliffe or where Huss was preaching. So this bull was, of course, aimed at Jan Huss, and it was calling for the, the ceasing of any preaching that we'll call Wycliffism or something of Wycliffe's theology. So like Wycliffe, Huss was summoned to appear in Rome. <clears throat> Huss was summoned to appear in Rome. And like Wycliffe, interestingly, interestingly Huss pretty much said no. He uh, refused to appear, and he sent representatives instead of going himself, and for that, he was excommunicated again. Okay, so y'all still with me? We're trekking together? Okay, another picture. Can y'all see that? No? This is supposed to be Huss, maybe, and before the papal offices, um, but this, is, this would happen later, so it's maybe not relevant now, but it's a nice painting. If you can see it. It looks better on my iPad, though. Um, okay, so jumping forward to 1414. Again, we're looking at the life of Huss. We're tracking his life. Uh, the Pope at that time called together the Council of Constance. Now, I talked about the Council of Constance last week. Does anybody remember what I said about the Council of Constance concerning Wycliffe? So this Council of Constance was actually the same council that condemned Wycliffe as a heretic, right? So uh, the life of Wycliffe and Huss, very similar in a lot of ways. So this is the same council that condemned Wycliffe. The same council was called to address two huge issues at this time. One was the rising heresy in Bohemia. In other words, from their perspective, this council was called in to deal with Jan Huss. 
they're called in to deal with him. He's a problem, and they need to sort of snuff him out in a sense, not to use mob terminology. I don't know, maybe. So they need to sort of deal with Huss. And so they call Huss to this council. Now, you guys probably, you may be familiar with Huss in this way. So Huss is called to a council in Constance. What happens to Huss as, or as he gets to the council in Constance? Does anyone know? So he has a friend that says, you know, bro, if he said that, I'm just gonna take liberty. Bro, I don't think you should go down there. I think, I'm, I'm suspecting that there may be some, uh, some foul play here. Um, although Huss had a safe passage, safe passage, anybody know what a safe passage is? It sounds just like what it's, the meaning is just like what it's saying. Safe passage, anybody know what that is? Okay, yes, pretty much. So Huss's friend says don't go, but Huss has what's called a safe passage, meaning he can pass safely, he can arrive safely at in Constance. But Huss gets there, and what happens to Huss? It's the opposite of the safe passage. <laughs> they arrest him. <laughs> he gets there, and they arrest him immediately. So although he has this safe passage, it really didn't mean anything. And this actually became an issue later when we'll look at Luther and why he wasn't condemned um, the first time. It was. Uh, political issues around this safe passage, this thing that had gone wrong in the life of Huss. So it's all tied together. It's one big picture. Okay. Um, so they arrest Huss and they throw him in prison as soon as he gets there, as soon as he gets there. And he's in prison for eight months. And while he's rotting in prison, we could say he was rotting in prison. So the prison uh, then was not like some of the prisons now where you have like 52 inch. Uh, screen, flat screen TVs, and you get three meals a day, nice meals. Meals like you would get at Winnie Palmer. That's a bad example, but Winnie Palmer has good food. So that prison, why do I know that? I got kids. I wasn't just at Winnie Palmer chilling. <laughs> so the prisons then were not like the prisons now, okay? So he was rotting in prison. He was malnourished. He was sick. He was rotting. And during this time, Wycliffe wrote many letters from prison. Sounds like Paul to the Philippian church. He wrote many letters from prison. You can actually still read those um, letters online. Very uh, weighty, uh, thought-provoking letters. <clears throat> okay, back to the story, continuing. So Huss has a safe passage. He gets to uh, Constance. Although he has a safe passage, they put him in jail anyway. He rots in prison for eight months. He doesn't die, but he's, uh, it's, it's a horrible conditions. And so continuing, when they finally get to uh, Huss's trial in July of uh, 1415, he was put on trial, and he was put on trial for the name I keep saying, Wycliffism. He's put on trial for Wycliffism. He's heavily adopted Wycliffe's theology. Wycliffe was condemned. Now Huss is on trial for the same uh, theology, for the same teaching. They told, him that they, <clears throat> they, they told him that he had to condemn Wycliffe's writings, those writings that had really gripped his conscience in theology. So Kian Huss basically said, this is what he says, when scripture instructs me to yield to the church, I will. That's his response. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Luther, right? At the Lightspeak Disputation, in 1519, where he says, what, anybody know? <clears throat> he says, Jan ik bin Husseit. What's that? Close? He says, yes, I am a Husseit. So he affirms Husseit's theology in some areas, or at least in the Leipzig, the, the Leipzig disputation. <clears throat> And we'll, you'll hear more about that later. <clears throat> okay, so after Huss refused to recant the teachings of Wycliffe, which he held to, um, he was told to recant his own teachings. <clears throat> and this is what he said. I have not recanted nor abjured a single article. 
The council desired me to declare the falsity of all my books and each article taken from them. I refused to do so, unless they should be provoked, unless they should be provoked false by scripture. So basically he's saying, when scripture condemns what I've wrote, I'll recant it. I'm not gonna recant it because you guys are telling me to. He also said, I refuse to be the enemy of the truth. I will resist to the, to the death all agreement with falsehood. It is better to die well than to live badly. Because of his writings, Jan Hus, John Hus, would be declared a heretic. Wycliffe was declared a heretic, therefore John Hus was, because he held Wycliffe's views. Huss was given one last chance to recant, and again he refused to deny his writings. So he was handed over to the emperor, and in a place commonly known or referred to as Devil's Place, Huss was burned at the stake. Um, and it wasn't just sort of a, they took him out and burned him. They stripped him of his garments, put on him um, a, a garment of mockery, put on him a sort of um, crown of mockery that had um, inscriptions or um, uh, tapestry or writings of devils sort of dancing around the crown. So it was to be, it was to be a mockery. It was to be, you were to be made a joke of. And they would take you out to a central square and there they burned him at the stake. So again, to, <clears throat> to disagree with uh, or find fault in uh, the church uh, at Rome, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, to propagate anything that would find fault in them was again capital offense. You see what happens here when someone does disagree with their teachings. Okay, so he was burned at the stake. Okay, so that was Huss's life. Now we'll transition to Huss's theology. Will, you had a question? Did, did, the, did the church, did the, no, there was, no, no, to, to answer plainly, no, um, they didn't. <clears throat> so it wasn't like a, a, a theological debate where you have two, um, what may be considered gray areas that two men hold strongly on and they're debating and they're trying to debate, to, to debate scripturally about something. That wasn't uh, the case. It was, you spoke out against the authority of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church and you were dealt with, um, if not in a minor way, in a major way, and this was a major way. He was burned alive. Okay, now the theology of Hyun Hus. So Hus didn't leave a lot of writings behind. Um, he didn't leave sort of volumes and volumes and volumes of writings like some of the other reformers. As Stephen Lawson put it, although he didn't leave volumes of writings, what he wrote was profound and often provocative. So let's look at some of what he wrote. As I said with Wycliffe, I'll say with Huss, we, we wouldn't uh, be in 100% agreement with Huss. We're not even in 100% agreement with each other a lot of the time, <laughs> okay? We, we wouldn't be in 100% agreement with Huss, but I'm gonna go through those things that I think we may be in agreement on, and we'll walk through those. <clears throat> so again, we're trying to tour New York in an hour. This is just fly by, okay? We, we don't have time to get into all of it, but here we go. First, on the church. <clears throat> During his exile, Huss wrote what's considered the most important book on the church in 1413. Um, in it, Huss addressed the Pope's authority. Next to what Wycliffe wrote on the same subject, it's considered the most famous since the time of Augustine in the third century, this writing on the church. Mainly what he was arguing in his writing is that the Christian church is the universal body of those predestined to life. Similar to Wycliffe's words when he called the church the household of the predestined. So the Pope and the Cardinals, he said, are not the church. Why? He said it's because they give no evidence of being numbered among the elect. They give no evidence of being numbered among the elect. This was big in Huss's theology. Um, some of the letters that Huss wrote from prison, and when he was in prison, he wrote many, many letters. 
One of his letters includes his desire for, he says, a fearless heart in the face of death. And he prays for strength to be drawn even more to Christ as he's rotting away in prison. You can actually read those um, online. Some of them are available. And you should read them. They're good and encouraging. God preserving us in the midst of such um, horrible conditions and in the face of death. It's, it's really encouraging stuff. Um, next, <clears throat> on divine sovereignty. On divine sovereignty. Huss strongly affirmed the sovereignty of God. He writes that God alone has the power to kill and to make alive, to destroy and to save, and to preserve his faithful ones in diverse sore perils and to grant unto them the eternal life with joy unspeakable. He writes on divine sovereignty. In other words, sovereignty is exclusively with God alone. And this carries over into every aspect of salvation. He says that the Pope cannot be the head of the church. Why? Huss believes because there can only be one sovereign. We would believe with him that there's only one sovereign. He writes, any Christian cannot be the head of the universal church with Christ. For the church cannot be a monster having two heads. He says the church cannot be a monster having two heads. I love that terminology. Um, Christ alone is the head of the universal church. Mere human leaders die, he writes, but Christ is a king that cannot die, the king of glory who has the gift of eternal life. Amen. I would amen us there. Next, on radical depravity. Familiar to us, uh, total depravity, we probably know it as. <clears throat> on radical depravity. Huss writes very similar to Wycliffe on the state of human nature or the condition of the natural man. He says, prone to greed, um, simony or simony, which means um, sort of the billing and uh, the buying and selling of um, ecclesiastical privileges, which was very common in the Roman Catholic Church. He says, on total depravity, men prone to greed, pride, luxury, the forsaking and despising of God's word. We are by nature. Also, he says, people are ensnared by the world, the flesh, and the devil, especially the vanities of the world. Sounds like 1 John 3. Do not be in love with the world, for all that is in the world is the... Anybody know? Less of the eye? Less of the flesh? Pride of life. All you see present in the garden with Adam and Eve. Huss seems to affirm that. He says, as a result, all men are subject to judgment. Huss writes, there is at hand the judgment of the judge most awful and whose bidding, and whose bidding necessity will be laid upon all men to publish their evil deeds to the world and by whose, and by whose will their souls and bodies will be burned an everlasting fire. So he doesn't have a light view of sin. He recognizes the sovereignty of God as the sovereign and only sovereign one. He says this God himself will expose men to where their works will be displayed like in a movie theater on a 30-foot screen. Um, not only the actions of the man, but the intentions of his heart are before God exposed. No one can hide from this sovereign God. And he says, <clears throat> or it seems from this that it is clear that Huss held to the radical corruption of all humanity and sin. Next, on sovereign election. We're looking at Huss's theology again. <clears throat> Huss affirmed the unconditional election of God. He writes, Predestination is the election of the divine will through grace, or, as it's commonly said, predestination is the preparation of grace, Huss says, making ready in the present time and of glory in the future. Having chosen his elect in eternity past, the Father gave them to the Son as a love gift to his cherished possession. Huss writes, no one belongs to Christ's kingdom, which is the church, except the son whom the father gave him. This is good too, and I would uh, agree 
maybe worded differently, but I would agree. So context here, Huss is, he's, he's adopted Wycliffe's theology. It's become his own theology. His own theology. Wycliffe has a lot of good theology. Um, Huss adopts it, and it becomes sort of his own. <clears throat> I'll switch the picture for your viewing pleasure. That's Huss um, sort of looking back at, and he's in the center square, sort of looking back at the church in uh, Prague, I think it is. Um, so context here, <clears throat> Huss is addressing um, and standing out against the Roman Catholic Church and their theology. So he's emphasizing, again, which we'll talk about more, he's emphasizing the fact that the Pope, because it says it has the authority and is the vicar of Christ and is the go-between and is the church, that doesn't mean that they are the church, right? Again, he's recognizing the elect church within the visible body, um, the elect within that institution, okay? He says on the unity of the church that the unity of the church the Catholic Church, here he's saying the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church, the unity of the Catholic universal church consists in the unity of predestination in so much as her separate members are one by predestination and in the unity of blessedness and in so much as her separate sons are finally united in bliss. In other words, although the universal church is spread out, although they're not in the same place geographically, they are united in Christ and with him and will finally be united with each other in eternity. So Huss seems to also here tie this final unity and bliss in heaven with those who can be identified by what he calls persistent holiness here on earth. Those who will be in heaven will those who on earth displayed persistent holiness. This is what he means. He says, identified by their persistent holy living, if anyone is predestined to eternal life, it necessarily follows that he is predestined unto righteousness. And if he follows life eternal, he is also followed righteousness, right? But he says, for the converse, it is not true. For many are made partakers of present righteousness, but from want of perseverance are not partakers of eternal life. So what is he saying here? He's saying only the elect have a true righteousness that endures. Others may give the appearance of being saved through a superficial righteousness or a mere morality, but in reality, they are not numbered among the elect. So again, Huss is, a, Huss is big on making this distinction between the visible church um, with those non-elect within that, with those elect within that visible church, right? So he's making a distinction here. He's aiming at and also propagating uh, the theology of election while aiming at the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, <clears throat> truck with me here. We got a couple more to get to. On definite atonement. Huss preached the vicarious or mediated sin-bearing sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We experience salvation through the punishment of the Son of God in our place. He wrote, Huss wrote, He redeemed us from everlasting damnation. Such then is the mercy that comes to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. When I read from God the Father, I thought about Hernando uh, or Fernando Ortega, anybody have that? The first song, I love it. But he says, he, it's his prayer to God the Father. Anyway, pick it up if you don't have it. Plug. So he affirmed the substitutionary death of God's son as the exclusive sacrifice of sin. He didn't have volumes on the extent of the atonement, but what he wrote seems clear. The son of God, he writes, is the most patient and brave soldier who knew he would rise again on the third day and overcome his foes by his death and redeem the elect from damnation. I think his words here help us to see that he understood that the cross was intended for those chosen by the Father. He also wrote, he, that is Christ, came not to destroy the elect, but to save them. It is my elect, not the proud, not the fornicators, not the greedy, not the wrathful, not the envious, not the world sick or those in love with the world, um, not the foes of my word, not the foes of my life, 
but it is my elect that hear and keep my word and suffer with me in grace. Okay, I would affirm that as well. I'm going through these a little more quickly because I'm going to spend some time on divine reprobation. Divine reprobation. Don't get too excited until you know what we're talking about there, specifically. Um, Okay, first, on persevering grace. Huss has no doubt that the elect who comprise the church cannot lose their salvation. He seems to line up with John 10, 28 to 29 when he writes, Christ, the best of teachers, proves by the greatness of God's gift, which is the Holy Spirit, that no one is able to fall away from grace. Because his father is almighty and from his hand, no one is able to pluck anything. Because Christ and his father are one with the Holy Spirit, Christ is our spirit who is Christ's gift by whom the church is knit together with him. Therefore, no one is able to pluck his sheep out of his hand. He affirms persevering grace. The persevering power of the sovereign God isn't something that the reformers sidestepped. They recognize God's sovereignty. The predestinate have uh, radical and abiding grace from which they cannot fall away, from which they cannot fall away. He says, Christ gathers his number together gently for the love, for the love and predestination do not fail. God will not abandon those predestined to be a part of the bride of Christ, Huss writes. He himself from eternity has chosen every member of his church into the bridal relationship inseparably connected to Christ. Okay. So, oh, there's a picture of Huss, maybe, um, being burned at the stake. I know that's a morbid picture, but it's, it's there. Um, on divine reprobation. Let's see if I have a... There's a nicer picture. <laughs> Words of wisdom from Huss. <clears throat> okay, divine reprobation. I have 13 minutes. Um, what is reprobation? I'll throw it out there first. What is reprobation as you understood it? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Don't be fearful. It's okay. Will? <laughs> Okay. All right. Any other thoughts? Okay. Punishment. Okay. Any other thoughts? Okay. We'll talk about it. (laughs) All right. On divine reprobation. Now, I asked that question, but listen. Just listen to what I'm going to say here, and then we'll, we'll get into it. I should stay here. Although I asked that question, <laughs> that's not what Huss is addressing. Um, but we can talk about that a little later. Although this section is entitled Divine Reprobation, I don't want us to misunderstand and think that Huss is addressing double predestination. However you understand that doctrine and its definition, because uh, we may have different understandings of that. Um, Huss, not, Huss is not addressing a predestinating of the wicked to destruction. He's not trying to give a theological treatise on whether God's decree to leave some to act in their sin to their just condemnation is doing violence to the will of the man or the man or not doing violence to the man. As I read through his writings on the church, this portion of that volume is called Good and Bad in the Church. He's not addressing the doctrine of God's decree as a theological topic. He's simply saying that there are some who have the eternal garments of righteousness that are actually wolves. And he's saying that there are those who now practice wickedness that are actually predestined to eternal life. Uh, they, They just haven't been saved yet, he says. So in other words, there are some who are a part of the true church by predestination through, although within time and space, they have yet to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. And so he's making this distinction between the true church and those who are not a part of the true church. That's the context of his writing on the subject of divine reprobation. If you want to talk more about 
um, double predestination or divine reprobation in a sense of God's decrees, come and talk to me after. I won't have a, a novel or eureka moment answer. We'll just look at the Baptist Confession, chapter three, paragraphs one, three, four, five, six, the whole thing, <laughs> all right? So we can talk about that, but that's not what he was addressing. I'm trying to keep it in context here. <clears throat> so Huss distinguishes the church from the visible church, the, the true church from the visible church by separating reprobate unbelievers and predestined believers. So he's using reprobation of those who are unsaved, they're, they're non-elect. I want to talk about that, but context. Um, talk to me afterwards. He writes, all are divided into the reprobate and the predestinate, the former being ultimately the members of the devil and the others members of the mystical body, which is the holy church, the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although there may be non-elected individuals within the church, it will not always be so, he says. When he says church here, specifically, he's talking about the visible church. But then he goes on to say the church is the mystical body of Christ uh, that is now hidden to us of which body uh, of which body the damned do not really have a part of or take part in. But they are like dung, which in the day of judgment are to be separated from the body of Christ. He's making a distinction. Roman Catholic Church institution and the true elect. It's these writings that got him condemned as a heretic. And explaining the parable of the fish caught in the net, um, in Matthew 13, he seems to have the same idea. He interprets it in this way. He says, the predestinate are represented by the good fish and the reprobate by the bad fish which are cast out. He sees the same distinction in the parable of the marriage feast in Matthew 22, which is right. Um, and the marriage supper uh, are gathered, the good and the bad, who are mingled in holy in the holy church mingled in the holy church right but the bad are not true sons just as those who are not true friends because they lack the marriage garment which is predestinating love he says the marriage garment is predestinating love those who enter the marriage feast with the proper garment um, are the elect but those without such attire are the reprobate Huss pointed to Judas Iscariot as an example of the reprobate. He writes, the reprobate Judas never, has Christ, never was Christ's disciple, as Augustine shows, but a wolf clad in sheep's clothing. And so Huss saw that someone might be in the church, even in the ministry, and as was the case with Judas, and still be reprobate. He's saying they could be in the church, but still be reprobate. Again, <laughs> he's aiming at the Pope here, the papal offices. Um, agreeing with Augustine, again, has affirmed that the reprobate are followers of Satan. He writes, he, Augustine, Christ spoke truly in regard to certain shepherds, for he holds all good shepherds in himself when he said, I am the chief shepherd and ye are one in me. But the reprobate, he says, who is the member of the devil, do not duly joined, are not duly joined together in the same structure, structure of his head. In other words, the reprobate may seem to believe the gospel, but their faith cannot save them. They will fall away. Huss says, so many, according to common fame, are called heads and members of the church. Again, aiming at the papal offices. Although, according to God's foreknowledge, they are members of the devil, who for a time believe and afterwards fall away and are now and always were unbelievers. I think he gets into God's decree there. But um, the non-elect may start with an outward confession of Christ, but they will fall away from him in time, revealing their unbelief. So I'm beating a dead horse here, but you get the point. Um, Huss is not taking lightly that men wear the garbs of righteousness externally, the Pope, those in the papal offices, though they are not truly saved, he says. You bear no fruit of righteousness. You go through the ceremonies, you do the right things, you say the right things, you, um, you, are, you, you have deemed yourself the vicar of Christ, but Christ has no place with you. 
you say you know him and you speak for him, but Christ will speak against you and you will be condemned and you will perish. And so what he's saying with strong language. Okay, <clears throat> I'm actually on time, that's good. The Reformation continued. The Reformation continued today. Pastor Jack asked this, and I'll ask it again before I close on this. How does the Reformation, you think, affect us now today? Um, from those men of the Reformation, their teachings, their theology, um, how does it affect us now today? Why are we, why are men always uh, saying uh, simper? Reformata. Why are we always saying always be conforming? Why are we always saying conforming? Not. Always be reforming. (laughs) Why are we always saying that? Robert? Yeah, that's good. Absolutely. It's, it's very common. It's not dead that people have this idea that they can work their way into heaven. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's true. That's true. Right. Yeah, that's good. So it's all sort of lumped together. Um, Christianity, uh, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, the world sees it as all one. Um, Yeah, that sort of ecumenism, which Ecumenical can be good, but in that sense, it's bad. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. Anybody else want to add to that? Nor? Many Puritans as well as the Reformers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Pito? Uh, yes, I was listening to a podcast the other day, um, and within that podcast, they were interviewing, they were at a Christian conference, and they were interviewing uh, people who are attending the conference, and they were asking them about justification in this podcast. So he's out recording, hi, my name is such and such. We're just asking people about the doctrine of justification. What is justification? And nine of 10 of the people at the Christian conference had no idea what justification was, or that the word, that it was in the Bible. And it was very interesting to hear that. And this wasn't that long ago. It was only a few years ago this conference was. And sometimes we think, like, well, how can that even be? But at the same time, this, uh, 
and an understanding of the Word of God. Um, and it's a privilege to sit under sound, sound preaching. I'll just say that. Um, much of what's uh, preached from pulpits is, uh, it's, it's not sound, to, to be honest. It's, it's very, it, it can be very weak, it can be very light. And it's not to say that we are um, a privileged few because anything in and of us, of course, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that it is a privilege that God has given us uh, men who value and care for the word and has given them a desire to handle the word rightly uh, and to preach sound doctrine. Sound doctrine isn't just an idea, a theological term that sounds good, so we throw it around. Titus, the qualifications, Titus 1, the qualifications, 1 Timothy 3, for uh, elders, it's to handle the word teaching sound doctrine, he says, teaching that accords with scripture. And then the qualification within that office is that you're able to defend the faith against teaching that's not sound, he says. So again, it's not just a theological idea, it's a biblical idea and the person who occupies the office of teacher or elder ought to be able to do that, okay? So closing here, I'm a little, <laughs> I said I was on time and then I went over, but that's okay. The Reformation continued. I'll close with Steve Lawson's words here. Words here. He says, the compelling story of John Huss reads like a dress rehearsal for what would follow a century later with Martin Luther. When writing in, uh, I think it's uh, Spalatin in February 1520, Luther said, without knowing it, both taught and held the teaching of Huss. In short, Luther says, we are all Hussites without knowing it. Luther saw himself as the fulfillment of Huss's prediction of the coming swan written in 1531. There are some say that he may or may not have said this or that. Um, but John Huss prophesied, uh, Luther says, John Huss prophesied about me when he wrote from his prison in Bohemia. They will now roost a goose, Huss means goose, but after a hundred years, there will, they will hear a swan sing. Him they will have to tolerate, and so it shall continue if it pleases God. Such was Huss's enduring influence on Luther, uh, Stephen Lawson says here, and on other reformers. Charles Spurgeon said, they burnt John Huss and Jerome of Prague, but Huss foretold as he died that another would rise again after him, whom they should not be able to put down. And in due time, he more than lived again in Luther. So Lawson asks, is Luther dead? Is Calvin dead today? That last man that moderns have tried to bury in misinterpretation, but he lives and he will live. And the truth that he taught will survive all the culminators that have sought to put him down. By God's grace, Lawson says, the truths have proclamated that the, the truths Huss pro proclaimed in his day live in our generation. Huss's gospel is our gospel, he says and that which thundered in Prague during the fifth century must thunder again in our present hour. May the Bohemian reformer exhort a lasting influence on the new generation of believers in our day. May all those predestined by God be strong this hour of history for God's glory and the good of his people. And may we pass the inheritance of the doctrines of grace to generations yet to come. Amen that on Hyun Hus.